Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to CLNS Media, powered by betonline.ag. Go to clnsmedia.com slash roll. Use our promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your first deposit. This is July 23rd, and this is the Bruins Beat on CLNS Media. And welcome back to the Bruins Beat on CLNS Media. My name is Evan Marinovsky. Back for another week. I hope you guys are having a tremendous summer. It's been very, very hot lately. I hope you guys are cooling down, maybe going to the beach, jumping in the pool, whatever. Um, but on today's podcast, we're not going to talk current things, Bruins. Instead, I had on Nesson play-by-play voice for your Boston Bruins, Jack Edwards, who was fascinating. Fascinating. We had a two-hour conversation. This week is part one. Next week will be part two. This episode is dedicated to sort of Jack's thoughts on the playoffs and playoff broadcasting. And then we go into his early career and how we got into being the Bruins play-by-play person. He says a lot of interesting things that I think you guys will really, really like. Um, I think it's a nice little break. There's not a lot going on with the Bruins. So Jack is fascinating to me, and I think you guys will find this this interview fascinating as well. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about my good friends over at BetOnline.ag. They're more than just some online betting platform. There's a lot of them out there, but none are quite like BetOnline.ag. Their approach is focused on the player, and they built their incredible reputation on offering you, the clients, nothing but the best. From cutting-edge technology to enticing promotions and the latest sports betting odds, they have it all. They're famous for their sports book where there are live lines on all major sporting events across all the major sports, including the MLB or whatever you like to watch. Their live betting feature allows you to bet on your favorites quick and easy and in real time. If you'd like to bet on any of your favorite sports, use my personal promo code CLNS50 at clnsmedia.com backslash NHL Bruins to get 50% cash back on your first deposit. Again, that's promo code CLNS50 at clnsmedia.com backslash NHL Bruins. If you guys like to keep this podcast free, which I hope and imagine you would, go there and take advantage of this great opportunity. That's betonline.ag. And maybe leave a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, here's part one of my conversation with Jack Edwards. And we're here with Jack Edwards. Jack, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. I uh, haven't had my hair cut since April, and uh, yeah, it's uh, good to get scraggly in the summer. Well, that's what we love. How is the summer going? It's, uh, you know, I, I go through a period of uh, decompression after every hockey season, and without fail, it takes three weeks. And this year I thought it was going to take a shorter time. Um, but you know, it, it, it was almost three weeks to the day that I started feeling normal again. And, and, uh, really to do that, I have to unplug as much as I can. I check my voicemail and email 
irregularly, maybe <laughs> once a day in the, uh, in the off season and, uh, just try to cut out the noise. Cause, uh, as you know, as anybody knows who makes his or her living in this industry, uh, in the information age, you're just bombarded and attempting to be bombarded by all kinds of information. If you can glean some nugget, uh, you know, if there's a little bit of wheat from those piles of chaff that you might be able to use at some point, you read it all if you can. And uh, the problem is you never can get to the end of the internet. So by unplugging, it's kind of a, uh, <laughs> if you will, uh, <laughs> An intestinal cleansing of the brain. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish I could do that. Um, but uh, what you're able to do, I mean, cause you're going all season long. I mean, there is not a day where you're not working from God, September to, you know, this year, June. So uh, August 1st, actually August 1st August is 1st. The day. Yeah. Yeah. It's the day that I start to assemble the charts and, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much every single day until the Bruins are eliminated. That's coming up soon. August. I just realized it's July, we're recording this July 17th. Yeah. And that's, this month has flown. Uh, and for me, it's going back to college at the end of this, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so first off, before we jump into your career, I, I have to ask you, what was your reaction to game seven? Um, disappointment. It was, it was just disappointing to see, the Bruins outplay St. Louis for the majority of the first period. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly, who rightly was the Conn Smythe winner, made a fantastic high slot tip that found an infinitesimal hole in the five hole uh, to beat Tuka Rask. But the Bruins continued the effort. And when Marshawn pulled up right around the blue line and decided to change out, and Petrangelo took advantage of that with less than 10 seconds to go in the first period, it changed the tactics of the rest of the game. St. Louis no longer tried to attack when it wasn't sure it it uh, had numbers. And uh, we knew that about the Blues. That's the way they had been playing since January. They were a tremendous lead team. You know, it was so hard to come back uh, against St. Louis especially when they got up by two. And, you know, that that changed the tactics of the entire game. It sort of took the air out of it. And the Bruins had a couple of surges. But, uh, you know, I, I refuse to judge the entire season on that one disappointment. Uh, it was a, a tremendous run by a group of individuals who really all gave up something for the team. And, and uh, they had that synergistic effect that is really a beautiful thing to watch in hockey and, and I think is unique to the sport. And uh, I, I, I will remember this season really warmly and fondly. And uh, I'm, it's, you know, I, I know it's not life and death. It's, it's hockey, okay? And if, if that's the worst thing that happened to anybody in the last 12 months – that was a hell of a 12 months. <laughs> that but, is true. <laughs> but, but, uh, but it, it's like when, when somebody dies and all people talk about is the way they died. Uh, you know, the Bruins 
were one win short of an immensely successful season, just a, a, a literally what would have been a great season. If you take the long view, you remember how they lived and not how they died, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. They had a, they had one hell of a year, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, for you, you know, you stopped calling the games for play-by-play in uh, the first after the first round. Yeah. Every other game after, you do pregame show, you do postgame interviews with players and 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 coaches. You do one with Cassidy. I gotta say, those interviews with Cassidy were great uh, towards the end of the season. Uh, towards the end of the playoffs, they had some really, really good sound bites. But for you, what's it like not calling games uh, after the first round? You know, um, I found that I was better uh, able to digest the game if I called the game into a recording device, which would never be used. <laughs> but I, I actually own... Uh, broadcast quality Sennheiser set, headset and, uh, and a high end portable recording device. And I was recording virtually every game, um, throughout the playoffs. Cause if I don't, I start yelling and screaming <laughs> in the press box and it's unprofessional conduct. And, and I, I need to channel it because. When I'm watching the Bruins, uh, you know, I, I can dismiss it with every other team. <laughs> but when I'm watching the Bruins, um, I react. And if I'm a fan instead of an announcer, I really go off the deep end. And that's not good. <laughs> I would pay real money to hear your call of the hit. Uh, Tory Krug made on Robert Thomas in game one. I mean, that would have been, cause a lot of people speculated on Twitter. Like when I tweeted the gif of that hit, so many were like, Jack should have been the one to call that. Well, you, you raise an interesting point because this was to my next point, actually. Yeah. Okay. Sort of, you know, I know you're a little, you're anti-national broadcasts. And I know you believe NBC should have two channels with the local broadcasters right. on each for viewers to choose. How would you do that? And sort of what do you think of the NBC broadcast during these playoffs? I, I first of all, um, being one of the, the lonely voices who criticizes national telecasts, um, I should preface this whole thing by saying that there is no doubt that in the United States, NBC has raised the bar for network television production. I also sh- should say that, that Mike Emmerich is not only a Hall of Fame broadcaster by merit because he calls a tremendously energetic game and really brings you into the feel of the game, but also he is a, a tremendous human being, just a, a great guy who's everybody's friend. So let, let me preface that by, by saying that little thing. Um, you know, I worked with Edzo uh, back in the ESPN days. And, you know, he remains a good friend, and I respect the work he does. Um, NBC, by playing to the yellow line right smack in the middle of the road um, leaves out a lot of context that 
is really um, important and almost vital to a regional broadcast. And since NBC cannot cover every single game of every single team during the regular season, um, the fans are used to a lexicon that belongs to its team of broadcasters. It's used to a certain production rhythm that is characteristic of the producer and the director uh, who carry on those duties for the regional broadcasters. And it is used to seeing the game through the prism of that one team. And having been on the other side of it, having worked for ESPN for four full NHL seasons and multiple rounds of the playoffs, um, it is so much easier for me personally to digest the entire National Hockey League based on having a reference point of one team than to try to cover what was then 30 teams, which is now 31 and soon to be 32 teams. Um, because you cannot possibly assimilate all the information and, and be able to transmit it with fluency to the audience for all 31 teams. You cannot know that those injuries that happened in November are showing up in late April or May or June. And, and understanding the day by day flow of every team is really of great consequence, uh, to the individual viewer of the National Hockey League. And, you know, I can't speak with authority about the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NFL because I've never covered those as a play-by-play broadcaster from that level. But I can tell you without any fear of having to backtrack um, that that it's way easier to see the game, to understand the game through the prism of one team and measure those opponents against that one team than it is to say, you know, for instance, I would get like uh, a Dallas-San Jose game uh, when I was working ESPN2 late Wednesday games or I, I don't know, maybe they were Tuesday games for, the, uh, for ESPN's coverage. Um, because you don't know if there's a lingering injury for some defenseman for Dallas or if this San Jose forward is having the night of his life because it's just a series of snapshots. It's not a movie. You know, you, you don't have context. You don't have that opening scene through two-thirds of the season. And in an age, you know, what's the last time anybody from 2002 did a podcast? Yeah, never. Right. I mean, think about how media has changed in the last 18 to 20 years. Everything's becoming more and more individualized. The pie is getting cut into sliver sized pieces. The entire uh, strategy of economics for mass media has become find your demographic, isolate it and dominate it. 
Well, in, in the NHL's case, that is 31 different demographics within the sub dem or the, the higher level demographic of the National Hockey League. And, and the way NBC covers the game from a philosophical standpoint is not to alienate anybody in those 31, uh, markets with probably with the exception uh, of Mike Milbury and occasionally Keith Jones. Um, but other than that, they're trying not to lose the audience. And Nesson's not worried about losing audience. You know, we, we know that the Bruins fans who are the core of the audience are always going to watch. They are always going to watch. Even if the team is in a terrible slide, they're always going to watch. When the Bruins have a great team, we gain audience from around the periphery, but we keep aiming at the center of the center. It's sort of like the, the black hole uh, theory in astronomy, right? A black hole has so much gravitational pull that light itself cannot escape it. That's why it's called a black hole. Well, the networks go for the edges of the galaxy and try to pull in as many different parts as they can. So they tell obscure stories while the puck's in the neutral zone advancing 25 miles an hour. And all of a sudden it turns into a two-on-one and Emmerich only has three words to say before the shot hits the pipe and goes in the goal. With us, it's whistle to whistle. You know, when, when the play stops, it's all bricks as long as he wants to go. And when the play is on, you'll notice that, that brick, almost without fail, will not pop in to the conversation. It's all about the puck. And, and that is where philosophically we differ. In production terms, we differ because I think Nesson pulls its replays back farther away from the actual moment of the highlight um, than any other U.S. regional network. Um, I, I, I think that, that Brian Cicello and Rose Meraki and Wheeler have done an awesome job uh, listening to Brick and absorbing his wisdom, as have I greatly benefited for many, many years. And it's not about the finish of the play, which you'll see three times in super slow-mo with unbelievable equipment and great photography and, and really, really interesting super slow-mo on every single goal. But with Brick, you understand more of how the play happened. And it's that how that is so important to Nesson. And in an age in which media is becoming more and more splintered, I don't know why the National Hockey League is not playing to that trend and capitalizing on it because that is hockey-related revenue. I, I think you said, I would pay to see or hear that description. Well, ding! <laughs> Light bulb ought to go on over Gary Bettman's head. I brought this up to him three years ago at the broadcast meetings. Crickets. And I don't know what the problem is, but if I were in charge of the Players Association, I would be arguing provide the world feed, which is being uh, channeled out to, to all kinds of different languages, provide the world feed with NBC's production, NBC's 
promotional graphics, NBC's must carry sponsors, all that stuff, and charge two bucks or five bucks per playoff game. Yeah. Now, why not? Why not with alternate audio? I mean, that is a ton of pay-per-view uh, revenue that's available. And, you know, for every, for every buck you bring in, that's 50 cents that goes toward the salary cap. Your black hole thing is a good way to put it because it's like, you have a point there. Do you, with that in mind, with the you know, NBC, the national guys trying to go for a bigger audience instead of the core audience, are they, do you think in your mind they're doing a good job of that or just by default, it's just a bad idea? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know the decision makers at NBC. I can tell you that the production people are hockey people. The, the, the crews, the broadcast crews are hockey people. Uh, having been, uh, in their shoes, I know there's a little natural friction between, um, the, the hockey people calling the broadcasts and usually the sales philosophy. Sales is all about numbers. If you can draw in more people, you're going to make more money. Ultimately, the decision makers at a U.S. television network are talking about tens of millions of dollars of shifted revenue when won or lost. And, you know, I have never held a job like that. So I haven't been responsible for those kinds of revenues. But as a viewer, um, I much prefer a game that tells me the story of the game. And if I don't know something, um, the broadcasters are trusting me to catch on instead of explaining what offside is. It's true. Um, so with that out of the way, I, I, I really liked your points about that. Let's, let's dive right into a little bit, uh, sort of your upbringing and your early career, your childhood. You grew up a Bruins fan. Oh yeah. Sort of most play-by-play guys have a funny story as to how they sort of started doing play-by-play. You said that you call the games by yourself uh, in the press box when you're not calling the games during the second, third, and uh, Stanley Cup final. <laughs> did you ever do that as a kid? Sit by yeah. The TV, sit yeah. By the radio, and sort of what, what did you sort of do with that? Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> I have this vivid recollection of trying to call play-by-play of a Bruins game. I think it was on a Sunday afternoon on CBS. Uh, it was back in the Peter Puck days. Yeah, this, <laughs> this, this stupid animated, uh, feature that explained the basic rules of hockey. <laughs> but it was the ultimate condescending effort to bring along some, you know, Billy Bob from Alabama who was just flipping through the dial and like, we're going to convince this guy with this animated feature to watch <laughs> hockey for the next two and a half hours. <laughs> but but uh, I have this vivid recollection. I couldn't have been more than 12 years old um, <laughs> of trying to call play-by-play off a 12-inch black-and-white monitor back in the standard definition days and failing so miserably at it that I thought, like, 
that's really hard. <laughs> but, but, um, all through college, I, uh, I went to the University of New Hampshire and that was before the days of cable television. And we were able to get, well, if the wind was blowing in the right direction, we were able to get a reasonably non-dirty signal. <laughs> Never, never crystal clear of channel 38, but the picture was frequently so poor that I would turn down the sound, no disrespect to Fred Cusick, but to listen to Bob Wilson, who gave such a vivid description of, uh, of the game on, on WBZ AM radio, <laughs> which, oh my God. <laughs> which you could receive in 38 states at night. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, mean 50,000 watt clear channel with a great uh, position on the dial. And, uh, and I, the games were in sync. You know, the, it wasn't like today where it's a double bounce off a satellite. And if you try to line up the radio with the TV, the radio's way ahead. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I would listen to, to Bob Wilson calling Bruins games and uh, then go to UNH hockey games and, and sit there with a tape recorder and, and call the games. And wow. That was, that was the beginning. It's funny because I feel like everyone in media has some form of a story with play-by-play. Even people like I don't, I don't have aspirations to do play-by-play. It's a, it's, I learned the hard way. It's a very hard job. Um, but I used to commentate my Xbox games. Like that was something I did. It kind of yeah. felt like you were doing it. And so I, I sort of, but that's, that is, that's very, that's a very interesting story with, um, with doing it with a 12 inch, like looking through like a lens, trying to see through the, the, the static. Um, but when did you sort of realize you wanted to become a broadcaster, like legitimately full time as your, uh, definitely during my junior year of college, I majored in eligibility up to then. I was, uh, I was a soccer player in college. I, you know, I don't mean to cast the aura that I was on my way to playing pro because I wasn't, <laughs> but between my sophomore and junior years, um, I had started as a sophomore. So I really wanted to make a move as a junior. And so I, I really increased my off-season training and uh, hooked on with a uh, summer league team in Vail, Colorado, uh, which I figured training at um, above 7,000 feet all summer would do me a lot of good. And it was working out pretty well. Uh, in the first game, I had uh, three goals in a post early in the second half, and our central midfielder sent me through – and the goalie came out, uh, tackled over the ball, and broke my tibia and fibula in a ferocious, uh, cheap shot, dirty play, meat wagon special. Uh, they drove the ambulance right into the penalty area to scoop me up and stick me in the back of it. Oh my and God. so that, um, I, I sat out a year. Uh, from playing and I had all this energy and, uh, really was examining the difference between who I was and what I was. And, uh, 
from there, I, I realized that I had always loved to write and I had always loved sports. So I could merge those two and I began to write and, uh, then at WUNH, which is still kind of a dirtbag student run radio station <laughs> and, and, and absolutely wonderful for that. Um, it's really arm's length. Like there's a faculty advisor who's sure that you're not throwing big beer parties in the studio. <laughs> but other than that, uh, you're on your own and, and it's still that way, uh, for the most part. Um, I advanced pretty quickly and, um, uh, started getting access to airtime and, uh, was able to call some play by play during that, uh, that long junior year. And I just, I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. I loved the, uh, the research. Uh, I loved learning, uh, the legendary Charlie Holt, who was coach of UNH for, I don't know, 25 years at least. Um, it seems that way anyway. Uh, he, he, took me under his arm and taught me a lot of X's and O's. And uh, he taught me how to see things on the ice. He taught me the value of defense in, uh, in hockey, which really has come in handy because, um, you know, that's what really separates good prospects from great players. Uh, guys who are able to play on the other side of the puck and guys who are able to make themselves valuable even when they don't have the puck. Uh, so the deeper I got into it, the more I had passion for it. And uh, at that time, I was just a dashboard boy called play by play of almost everything and, uh, and led me in the right direction. And aside from working in a bookstore and painting during the summers and a uh, couple of Short stints, one as a dishwasher in, uh, in Vail, Colorado, uh, for a couple of weeks. I've never collected a paycheck outside of, of, uh, broadcasting. So that's a blessing. That's incredible, so, really. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I reflect almost every day on how, uh, fortuitous the sequence has been. Um, I don't call it luck. Uh, there, there were a couple of moments that were just really, really fortuitous, but, um, you create your own luck. You, you have a lot of self-determination in broadcasting and even at ESPN, which was the land of opportunity, but it was confounding at how to gain the opportunity, um, because it seemed so arbitrary, uh, not not always, in fact, frequently, not by merit, but by some, like, why did they choose that person to do that? But, um, if you, if you keep following your heart, things will work out. Were there ever any moments during your time, uh, with those broadcasting jobs? where you said, all right, maybe this won't work out. Were there ever any doubts along the way to sort of getting to this point? Um, 
The big one was when ESPN decided it wasn't crazy about hockey anymore. Um, when they saw the writing on the wall that there was going to be a significant lockout, uh, they were wooing the NBA at that time. Uh, the NBA's numbers were way better and still are way better than the NHL's numbers. Uh, the marketplace had not splintered to the point that something like the NBC Sports Network could make the NHL the centerpiece of its programming for nine months a year, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which it is. And, and that's tremendous. And, you know, I love Catherine Tappan and I, you know, I, I have great fondness for Keith Jones and, and, and Mike Milbury and Mike Emmerich and Ed Wolchick and, uh, Brian Boucher was, was a tremendous add to that team. Uh, and John, For, John Forsland, who, who gets a, a tremendous amount of work, but not enough. Uh, and in my mind should be the, the heir apparent to, to Mike Emmerich. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, that they've done awesome work there. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I, that was a point that I thought like, oh, well, you know, this is, this is the end of it, you know, and I, I'm not sure if it's, uh, all going to work, but then, uh, out of the blue, I got a call. Uh, from, uh, a guy named Mike Fox, who's, uh, still working Colorado Rockies games. I, and no, he worked Colorado Rockies. Now he's working for the Avs. <laughs> well, you, and, so you changed teams and, in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, he, uh, he told me about this job opening at HDNet. And, uh, so I got, Seeking games as their lead play-by-play guy for the NHL. Um, and that was, that was more than enough work. Um, and then the year long lockout happened and, uh, that was a freaking test because income went to zero. <laughs> and I'm That's dead tough. serious. I mean, dead serious. And Elijah was about to be born. And I'm making that. And, you know, it's, we were scrambling. Um, and in many ways, it took us about 10 years to recover from, from that year-long lockout. And, oh, by the really? way. Yeah, and just for grins, they threw away half the two, uh, 2013 season. And uh, for that half season, my income was zero. And, uh, and those were really difficult times, but, um, I still felt in my heart, uh, that I could be, uh, a broadcaster who brought a good contribution to the telecast. So, so how, after the lockout, that was right before, sort of before you got the job at Nesson. Exactly before. Yeah. So how did that get started? How did kind of the, the, the tires get into working for the <laughs> job? I was going to save this uh, for my autobiography, but, uh, I guess, uh, I'll spill it here. So, uh, I grew up reading the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald, uh, growing up in Durham, New Hampshire, you know, daily delivery 
at the top of the driveway. And uh, I lived in, uh, in Connecticut and uh, the globe did not deliver to my town. And I, uh, I badgered the globe for months and I called their, their uh, circulation department and I said, will you please deliver the daily globe to my town? And finally they broke down. It was either the spring or right around there of uh, 2005. So we're coming out of lockout. And uh, <clears throat> one September morning, I was walking out to the top of the driveway. First thing, pick up the newspaper, immediately flip to the important part, the sports section, open it, and there's a story that Dave Shea is not going to return as the uh, road play-by-play guy for the Boston Bruins. And I thought, well, I'm about to sign another year-long deal with HDNet. And HDNet wasn't really playing fair in that negotiation. I won't get into the weeds on that one. Uh, but it was a very contentious negotiation. Um, and I thought, what, what have I got to lose by this? You know, it, it was, it would be for substantially less money. Um, but it was half the job of my dreams. <laughs> and, yeah, that's good. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> and, and so I called everybody I knew at the Bruins. I mean, everybody I knew and, and uh, a couple of people at Nesson as well. And, uh, the next, that, that day, in fact, I sent, uh, DVDs off to the Bruins and to Nesson. The day after that, I interviewed for the job because they were, uh, no, that was two days after. Cause the next day was Sidney Crosby's first game as a professional preseason against the Bruins in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So I drove out to Wilkes-Barre, got a press pass. Um, I still have the original footage of that, <laughs> by the way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I actually hired a photographer um, to shoot it. And uh, first guy I see when I walk in the rink is Sean Cody. Uh, Sean was a defenseman for UNH. Uh, really good human being. And Sean, you know, greets me with a bear hug, puts his arm around me and says, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I actually just threw my hat in the ring for the Bruins play-by-play job. And he walks me right through the corridor to the that space in the tunnel outside Bruins dressing room and beckons Mike O'Connell over. OC was, of course, the GM at the time. And he said, this is your guy right here. And uh, 24 hours later, I was interviewing for the job at Nesson. And that night, uh, Ray Gilbo, who's uh, still the uh, CFO at Nesson, uh, called me and offered me the job. Wow. 
That so, is some. That's like almost meant to be. You know what? Um, when Fred Cusick retired, I months before that had signed a two plus two, so a four year contract company option uh, at ESPN, and I found out that Fred was leaving, and I walked into the vice president of being a real jerk uh, at ESPN. Uh, which he was very good at. And I said, because uh, he was responsible for all the contracts. And uh, I said, you know, I'm really happy here, but uh, there's a job that I want more than this one. And uh, I, I need to know uh, if you will let me out of my contract if the team – and Nesson offers me this job. And it took him less than two seconds to say no. <laughs> well, you know, that, so, so I thought like, well, you know, that's one on the bucket list that uh, doesn't get checked because um, the timing's got to be perfect. And that's, that's part of the fortuitous part, right? And, and the timing's got to be perfect for you to land one of those jobs, you know, play by play for an original six team. And by the way, if you're raised in new England, there's no original six, there's an original one, right? So, so you have to be out of contract or have a contract that reads specifically that you're going to get out of your deal for that deal. And I wanted the security of a four year contract at AESPN. And I understood I had signed it and, Right after Mr. Big Shot said no, I said, okay, fine. I shook his hand and left the room. You know, I, that's, that's what your bond is, right? You know, mm -hmm. you say no matter what, I'm going to fulfill this contract to the best of my ability. So I did. And, uh, I figured I'd never get the job. So, so that you really thought that was your chance. Like that oh, was, yeah. It, and yeah. Across the, right off the bucket list, that was the end of it. Like, yeah. Cause I, I, I thought that this job is not going to open up again during my career. Wow. And so that, so you get this job. Yeah. An unbelievable story. That's an yeah. incredible story. <laughs> you get it. And, um, so 0506. Read the book though. Read the book when it comes out, folks. Oh, <laughs> yes. I'll let you plug that at the, at the end of this, but. <laughs> But what, when you called road games, oh, five, oh, six, oh, six, oh, seven, what was that sort of like? Because you were only doing road games. Yeah. Was any different? What's, what, how was that like? Um, the way I put it to, uh, Joel Feld, who was then the, uh, vice president of, of programming, I guess. I, I don't know what his exact title was. Uh, I said, you, you've got you guys missing half the story. And, uh, you had Dale doing home games, me doing road games, Brick having to change his cadence and his style even on consecutive nights. Um, and I, I thought that two things were happening. I thought that the audience was not getting served fully and that, that Brick would become a superstar if he only had to deal with one play-by-play. -play. And uh, so I, <laughs> at my own peril, I, uh, I suggested that uh, they 
go with one play-by-play guy. <laughs> was this after 0607? This was after 06. It, it was, I think, in March of 07. So late, late in my second season of, uh, of calling road games. So, you know, we all know how that played out. And, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, Dale has won my utmost respect, uh, as a person, which is way above, uh, anyone's profession. And he, you know, professionally, he's done it all. Um, I'm glad it worked out for everybody. Did, yeah. So did they offer it to you first or they offered to Dale first? I don't know. You don't know. You got the job. So that's all that matters, right? You got the job. So yeah. it, it worked I, out for you. And- I, I, Dale, I, I think, uh, Dale has, has been on the record as saying that, that they offered it to him first. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm proud of that silver medal. Hey, it's, it's a good silver medal. It's, it's worked out. Um, when did the, uh, you know, your origin of being as opinionated as you are, when did that first come about? And when did you realize I can do well with this? I've always had strong opinions. Uh, most of them were muted by my sister who was two years older than me (laughs) until, until she left the house for college. And then I really found myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny how, how media has changed during my career, which began in 1979. Uh, in 1979 and until 1987, there was, uh, a doctrine in effect, uh, that the FCC, uh, supervised. It wasn't a law, but it was a doctrine. Uh, it was called the fairness doctrine and it mandated that every single broadcast outlet as a condition of its subsequent next application to extend its license to use the public resource that is the airwaves must have a regular newscast must. So you have rock and roll stations having a regular newscast every hour. (laughs) Seriously, WRKO radio, which was a dominant top 40 station, had a regular newscast. And so there was, there was a regular staff for news at every single TV and radio station in the United States. And when, uh, well, so, so let me, let me digress from that a little bit. Um, if you have that many people doing the same job, there is natural competition. You never want to get beaten to a story. And most important, you never want to be wrong. And it served as a self vetting mechanism, um, for a number of political reasons the Reagan administration stacked the FCC and wiped out the fairness doctrine in 1987 and talk radio was born. Talk is cheap. And the reason that that rings true is because you can have four studios with four different radio stations in the same hallway, belting out opinions 
to isolate their demographics and dominate them. And some of those might be diametrically opposed to one another. But under the same corporate umbrella, they're bringing in a ton of money because what used to be white bread and vanilla, because everybody was covering the same story and vetting each other by natural force, suddenly had become isolate your demographic, dominate it, and don't tell them anything that they don't want to hear or makes them uncomfortable because you risk losing your audience. And there's nothing that strikes fear into a broadcast general manager more than somebody exercising the most powerful uh, muscle in the United States, which is that. Change the channel. Right? That's so, true. That's 100% you know, true. So, so as my career has progressed, media has become both more and more splintered and more and more opinionated with um, relatively little blowback. And it was such a natural fit for me uh, to call Bruins games because at a time when the splintering of the marketplace was going into turbo speed, um, <laughs> the team I loved offered me a job. And, and um, you know, I, I let my emotions flow freely. As, as Bob Wilson said, objective, no. But we try to be fair. And when I get accused of being a homer, whatever people want to label me as, that's up to them. But compared to what? Because if you listen to a lot of regional and local broadcasts, when the opponent scores, even if it is a sensational hockey play, it sounds like their puppy just got run over in the road right in front of their house. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. And and I would say to you that that Brick and I and Brian Cicello, Rose Meraki and Wheeler, Patrick White, our entire production team, makes an effort to honor great opponents because there are no great victories without great opponents. And when somebody does a stand-on-your-head play, like what immediately springs to mind was a couple of years ago before he ended up uh, having his, his issues, uh, Kyle Opozo beat two guys up in the corner of the attacking zone, in the left-wing corner, stick-handled through a defenseman, and then went uppers on Tim Thomas. And, and, no, it had to have been Tuka Rask. Sorry. But it's it just an unbelievable goal. And I went off. And at that time, I was spending a lot of time on Twitter between periods. And the oh, blowback God. from Bruins fans was, was ridiculous. I mean, it's like, what are you, what are you cheering for the Islanders or something? You know, this is obviously, uh, before Pozo moved on, but no, <laughs> no, <laughs> well, it's I'm always hockey. I'm a hockey fan. 